for my reading of my favorite section from People of the Black Circle. So, I'm writing a novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this unique one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. My novel I'm working on is still titled Untitled Sword and Sorcery Novel. <laughs> and so far, I've talked with you about the origins of the thing as a short story, the genre of sword and sorcery, what it is, why I chose it, that kind of thing, my origin for the character, Vo, who we're following through this novel, which is a short story cycle, a bunch of short stories that add up to you know a novel covering a period in a character's life or their entire life. And last time, I talked about how I just kind of figured out what are the types of stories and story techniques that I want to play with in this book. I also talked about my adolescent fear of cliché that kept me from writing or made it much harder, and reclaiming reading and writing, you know, exercises basically from school in your post-school life, where you can usually find a lot more pleasure in them. Most things, I think, are more pleasurable when you are not being tested on them and being forced to do them. I mean, I like having my cat sit on my lap and stroking his little head. But, you know, if uh, <laughs> I was being made to do that and getting graded on it, I might feel a little differently. So at this point in going through the Denim Notebook, where I'm doing all my outlining for the novel, we have reached April 4th, 2020. At that point, I had all these story ideas and techniques that I was very excited to play with, and I thought, okay, I'm getting a little worried I'm going to get lost in the woods here. I need to start coming up with organizing principles for the novel, like structure, theme, point of view that I'm going to be writing from, all that good stuff. And I'll talk about that next time, because I still want to talk about one other thing I did before I got to that point. I'm going to rewind in the timeline a little bit. Back to March 17th, 2020, when I was still kind of in the middle of figuring out all the stories, the types that I wanted to play with, or going through that big penguin book of literary theory techniques and yada yada. And I reread a story that to me, if I had to pick one of the classic sword and sorcery stories to be like the thing, the Ur text, that would be The People of the Black Circle by Robert E. Howard, a Conan story, of course. I do like to stress for this podcast that you don't have to have read anything that I mention in order to get something out of it, and I would stress that even for this episode where I'm going to be comparing and contrasting, talk about reclaiming old school stuff, The People of the Black Circle by Robert E. Howard versus... <laughs> <laughs> comparing it with, but I wrote verses on the page here, so it uh, gives you an idea of the nature here. Conan the Buccaneer by Lynn Carter. Now, you may want to go off and read Conan the Buccaneer. Don't. <laughs> you may want to go read The People of the Black Circle. Please do. If you do, you'll probably get a bit more out of the episode, but like I say, you don't have to. And the nice thing is, The People of the Black Circle, like all of Howard's stuff, has fallen out of copyright and is free to find online. 
The People of the Black Circle is novella length, so somewhere around 20,000 words, written in three parts uh, over several months in 1934 when it was published in Weird Tales magazine. Howard got paid a princely sum of $250 for it, which in 1930s money was probably $5 billion. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to outline the whole plot, but, you know, as Wikipedia tells me here, it's set in the pseudo-historical Hyborian Age and concerns Conan kidnapping an exotic princess from Vendaya, which is kind of a prehistoric India, while foiling a nefarious plot of world conquest by the Black Seers of Yimsha, a bunch of magicians. Due to its epic scope and atypical Hindustan flavor, the story is considered an undisputed classic of Conan lore and is often cited by Howard scholars as one of his best tales. It's also one of the few Howard stories where the reader is treated to a deeper insight on magic and magicians beyond the stereotypical Hyborian depiction as demon conjurer illusionist priests. Conan the Buccaneer came many decades later in 1971. It's a fantasy novel by Lynn Carter and, pardon me, I forgot him earlier, L. Sprague de Camp. I get a little fixated on Lynn Carter, more on that in a minute. Yeah, it features Conan, of course, and is a, well, it's a, it's a bit different, it's a bit different. It's about Conan being in his late 30s and he's the privateer of a ship called the Wastrel, uh, Wastrel? Uh, it, where he becomes embroiled in the politics of the Kingdom of Zingara when he searches for a mythical treasure on the Nameless Isle. Mixed up in his adventure are Princess Chabela, daughter of a dying Zingaran king, the privateer Zorano, and the Stygian sorcerer Thoth Amon. Chronologically, Conan the Buccaneer falls between the Pool of the Black One in Conan the Adventure and Red Nails in Conan the Warrior. However, the book ends with Conan as a successful captain, high in the favor of the royal family of Zingara, while Red Nails starts with him as a fugitive mercenary in the jungle south of Stygia. How Conan lost his ship, left the sea, and took up again the role of a mercenary is untold. Okay, enough Wikipedia. And even from that, you start to see what are some of the issues when you compare and contrast these guys. See, uh, I mentioned this in the first episode of the podcast, but let's quickly review. Lynn Carter and L. Sprague de Camp were a couple of writers who were really known more for their editing, which is a backhanded compliment and an intentional one. Uh, yeah, they got a hold of the rights to Robert Howard's Conan writings, and they took advantage of the fantasy explosion of the 60s that came out of Tolkien's uh, success with Lord of the Rings to republish his stuff, but they didn't just republish it as it was. They tried to string all these short stories that Howard wrote with almost certainly no intention of making them into like one coherent narrative uh, as a coherent narrative, tracking Conan over 11 books from a young man coming south from Samaria all the way to being an old man ruling the kingdom of Aquilonia with a kid. This iteration of the Conan stories is very controversial because A, Howard had no intention of stringing things together into a big narrative, but also B, in service of stringing things together, the two guys wrote original stories like Conan the Buccaneer, that's whole cloth. They also would do posthumous collaborations, taking scraps of Howard stories and outlines and completing them. And I would say one of the most egregious things they did was to take stories Howard had finished that were not Conan stories, usually historical stuff set in, say, ancient Egypt or whatever, and then they would just add some wizard crap and make the main guy Conan and yeah, dust their hands, call it a day. They would also very clunkily connect things by putting italicized paragraphs above each of the stories, whether it was theirs, a collaboration, quote unquote, or an original, where they would explain how the hell Conan got from the end of the previous story to the beginning of the one you were about to read. These explanatory paragraphs were often a real stretch, and as the Wikipedia bit that I just read there made clear, sometimes they didn't even cover everything you quote-unquote needed to know before going into the next story. But you know what? For all the people, rightly I would say, poo-poo this series, and as much as I certainly will <laughs> as we progress here, it turned out 
you know, when I found a stack of them at Sellers and Newell Books in Toronto, shout out, great store. When I found a stack of these for a good price at that store and scooped them up, I had actually found something very, very, very useful for me as a writer who wants to do a sword and sorcery story about a character told through many individual short stories over a period of their life, um, which is that, you know, I would read a Howard story, then I would read a Lynn Carter story, then I would read a Howard story again, then a Sprague and the Camp collaboration, then I'd read a posthumous collaboration that gets kind of crappy halfway through. You can really tell where, you know, say Carter or DeCamp take over. And it was just like this constant, unintentional compare and contrast situation going on, helping me see the difference between the original master and the well-meaning fanboys who wanted to do what he did, but ultimately would time and time again create these very shallow surface renderings. They might have a lot of the basic elements, you know, there's Conan and there's a princess and there's an evil wizard and stuff. But I would come away from reading their stories feeling kind of not just even that I wrote, I read something bad per se, quote unquote, empirically bad, but something that just left me feeling kind of empty, kind of, well, that happened. And what's crazier still is it's not even just that, like, I got the feeling that Carter and DeCamp didn't really fully understand what made Howard's work great. So they weren't able to go anywhere near that when they wrote their own versions of it. Carter, and this is why I tend to focus on Lynn Carter more than DeCamp, he would write these introductions to each volume of their Conan reprint slash rewrite whatever series. And check this out from the introduction to Conan the Buccaneer. There's a whole bunch of uh, stuff in it, but this little bit at the beginning just blew my mind. Okay, here's Lynn Carter. This novel is set in a world where there are no television talk shows, no income taxes, no commuter trains, no air pollution, no nuclear crises, or campus riots, or midi skirts? I guess he meant miniskirts. A world blissfully innocent of detergent commercials, 30-cent subway fares, Spiro T. Agnew speeches, freeze-dried coffee, electric toothbrushes, pornographic movies from Denmark, draft dodgers, women's lib, and the Los Angeles freeway. It is a world that never was, but certainly should have been. A gorgeous, improbable, romantic world where all the men are handsome and heroic, all the girls impossibly beautiful and willing to dally back of the arena with a gladiator or two. Ugh. A world made up of trackless jungles, mighty mountains, and shiny seas where cities blaze with barbaric splendor glorious quests are possible and adventure is a part of everyday life it is crammed to the brim with weird monsters sinister magicians and grim-jawed warriors a world where magic actually works and the gods exist in reality not just the imagination of their worshipers this is the world of a popular new kind of fiction we call sword and sorcery welcome to it <gasps> oh man a little bit more here and then <laughs> and then we'll stop here if you are one of those unfortunate few who have never before read a novel of sword and sorcery you are in for a treat a treat that is if you crave to escape for an hour or two from the above features of modern life into a gorgeous impossible world for sword and sorcery is sheer escapist reading nothing more it has no hidden meanings it offers no handy pre-packaged solution to any of the world's numerous ills it has no ism or ology to sell no message to put over it is something remarkable and rare these days it is entertainment. Yeah, you can probably see that I don't want to be Lynn Carter. I don't want to be this guy. <laughs> I mean, aside from the obvious fact that he seems very humorless and sexist and just, you know, whatever, it's this idea of that sword and sorcery has to be pure entertainment and entertainment can't possibly mean or say anything. That's a false dichotomy. Don't worry about that. Anyway, whatever. I could spend another 30 minutes talking about why Lynn Carter just blows my mind and why he feels like very much the kind of author who was being parodied in the great British cult comedy series Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, whose titular full-of-himself writer says that, you know, he doesn't use subtext. Any writer who uses subtext is a coward. <laughs> 
But for all this, I, wanting to avoid being someone who just really loves a thing and then wants to play with that thing, but ultimately creates something that is basically just a disposable surface representation of the thing I love, a, a photocopy, you know, something that isn't really necessary, doesn't really bring anything new to the world, found it very useful to compare and contrast. And I chose Conan the Buccaneer to be compared with People of the Black Circle, while People of the Black Circle, because, yeah, you know, like I said, that's my urtext, you know, that's my, oh, that's my Conan story. Uh, that's what I love. Uh, Conan the Buccaneer, because it was a wholly original story, an attempt to tell a Conan-like story, because it comes not too long after People of the Black Circle in the chronology of Conan's life that Lynn Carter and L. Sprague de Camp invented, so it's more or less meant to be the same guy that you read about in the Howard story preceding it, and because it's in many ways the same story with the same cast, even though it's pirates and out in the ocean for the most part, as opposed to being in a vaguely India and Afghanistan kind of analog like People of the Black Circle. So it's easier to compare. Okay, so let me share my findings with you, because there's definitely some humor to be found in comparing one story that is magnificent to a story by a guy who should have been, a pair of guys, who should have been able to write a great Conan story. They only read and edited, like, the entirety of the man's work, Howard's Conan work, along with a bunch of his other stuff, if I remember correctly. And also because, like, you know, I, I, I've set myself a real challenge, you know. I'm not looking to write a perfect Conan story or a Conan story at all, but I am looking to write what I think is a really solid sword and sorcery collection of stories where I want to add my voice and I want to update the genre, you know. Very last thing I'm going to say before I get into it, uh, you know, yeah, I'm well aware, of course, that a lot of sword and sorcery stories, particularly the classics, contain things that are a little uncomfortable by today's values. And I would not poo-poo anyone who decided, you know what, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to read this old stuff where it can be kind of sexist or racist or whatever. I would, however, say that I think old art is not something that should be apologized for. Like, don't try and find, oh, well, you know, wasn't that racist because blah, or wasn't that sexist because da, da But I think, you know, we still study art by the Catholic Church from like the 1300s, and they were getting up to some stuff then that doesn't really match with our values now. However, it's still worth looking back to find what is a value and then build on it right? And that's part of going to be part of me trying to update the genre as I write. Not that I'm the first one to do this, uh, or will be the first one to do this, but you know, I think you can leave the racism and sexism and whatever else on the floor and then take with you some of the really cool dynamic stuff, a lot of which I've already described. All right. The people of the black circle. So first thing I compared was the pacing. I noticed how Conan the Buccaneer does way less in 190 pages. I don't know exactly how much, but I would say approximately double 40,000-ish words uh, of uh, what the people of the Black Circle accomplishes, which is so much more in only 102 pages. You get a feel for why this is just by looking at the openings of each book. Conan the Buccaneer has a prologue before its first chapter. Those two things combined, 16 pages with no... Conan. Two scenes, it's all set up and conversation, and there's a minor supernatural event that is soon explained away. So I came over back to People of the Black Circle. The first 16 pages of that gets us into a third chapter, conveys six scenes, has talk of Conan that is swiftly followed by a dramatic entrance of Conan to a tense scene, and a lot more happens. You get a dramatic dying king with a princess character will follow, a magical explanation of what's going on that is still mysterious because of weird restrictions that are outlined by the characters, and we introduce a courtly conspiracy. 
This is somewhat spited, and it's the third thing, as the princess has to kill her brother, the king, to save his soul. Then we have Conan introduced with his dilemma where he's been a leader of men and some of his men have been taken into prison by this kingdom ruled by this dying king who's just been killed. You know, there's talk of Conan and tribal conflict. The princess's quest to destroy the king's magical killers is established. How her quest intersects with Conan's and why he's the extraordinary man for the job. It's amazing the amount of stories you come across where it's not really clear why we're following this particular person aside from the fact that they have been designated the person Protagonist. Then, as I mentioned, Conan bursts into the story, unaware of all the courtly intrigue stuff. I love it. He doesn't know what the heck is going on. He's just like, whatever, I'm here for my guys. My guys, you got in prison. You know, confronts the governor about his priority, which is his seven captured men, only for the princess to walk in as the governor begins trying to recruit Conan for her mission of taking revenge on the magic buggers who killed her brother, the king. Seeing an opportunity, Conan kidnaps the princess and runs off before anything can be explained to him. And finally, in our first 16 pages here, we introduce a parallel man and woman team, the villainous lady love and sidekick to an evil wizard we met earlier uh, in these 16 pages, who when we were establishing like what the heck was going on with the king and sort of some of the mysterious magical rules around that, and their motivation to capitalize on the kidnapping we just read about. That's 16 pages. Why did I choose 16 pages again? Because that is how long it takes Conan the Buccaneer to get through its prologue and its first chapter. There is no prologue in People of the Black Circle. It does that thing you'll hear a lot in writing advice circles, which is start the story when it frigging starts and not a moment before. Over with Lynn Carter and DeCamp in Buccaneer, what happens in the first 16 pages there? Well, we get a ghostly dream, which is awoken from by a princess who does everything very boobily. The descriptions are very much what I just said implies. She seeks supernatural holy guidance and gets it from the text, ex when, sorry, gets it when the text explicitly states that this sets in motion a real cool story, bro, telling me the story's gonna be cool, instead of just showing us a cool story. There are long descriptions of the villains of the story convening, having a little meeting, long block of dialogue in which Conan is briefly mentioned, but with no motivation beyond liking treasure and a simple magic spell that unlocks exposition about what the prologue princess is up to. Magic limitations are given that create a plot contrivance, not awe, then tasks are doled out by the villain patron to his two minions. That's it. What I took away from this in my notes was that, you know, a short, fast, dramatic scenes are Howard's thing. Lots of telling, not showing, in mostly one long-ass scene over in Carter. Carter likes to hang out in his scenes. Howard flips through them and makes sure one drives straight into the next, as if next scene is in dialogue with previous scene. The lesson I took from all this was to cut quickly and cut to the chase, like in a screenplay. You know, think of how short chapters are in something I'm familiar with, William Gibson's later books, where they're in the hardcover is like a page sometimes, maybe two. Also, if the next scene doesn't spring from the current scene, maybe it's not the right scene. Now, this is advice to myself from myself, <laughs> right? This is not me telling you, dear listener, that this is how all writing should be done. But if you are setting out like I am to write sword and sorcery that carries with it some of the attributes of the classic stuff, in particular, of course, good old Robert Howard, the god of sword and sorcery, then this will hopefully be helpful to you. Certainly it's been helpful to me, you know, I'm not afraid of short chapters, I do try to make each chapter kind of come off of the last one in a way that makes sense, but 
I don't necessarily have those chapters be like almost in direct dialogue with each other. And not even chapters, but just like pieces of a chapter, like a scene going to another scene. You know, I was really impressed at how you just have this kidnapping and then immediately the servant of the princess who's been kidnapped runs over to her wizard lover and is like, hey man, something just happened. Check it out. <laughs> and it propels, you know, the story you know, into that scene and so on and so forth. You know, that happens over and over again in People of the Black Circle where it's almost as if literally the people in the next scene were standing around watching the previous scene and then going, holy crap, and <laughs> reacting to it and propelling off of it. I think that's really cool and I want to do more of it in my writing. Also, while I am good at, I think, writing a good short scene and starting things when they start, like anybody, I sometimes like the sound of my own voice and I want to hang out in a scene and describe every little thing. So, you know, it's always good to get a reminder about stuff, even if you feel like you got it, you know? The next thing I looked at in my comparison and in my notes was what I just titled as The Weird, whether we're talking about the Lovecraftian, usually inspired horror, or the dark and mysterious magic, both common things in sword and sorcery that help set it apart from high fantasy and other things. I noticed that both stories feature magical battles of willpower, the classic thing where, you know, one guy stares at another guy and god, they just stare so hard at each other until one guy, you know, falls over dead or whatever, and secondary villains doing battles battle with the primary, you know, the student to the teacher, the second in command to the first in command, uh, you know, turning on them, that kind of thing, Kylo Ren on whatever the heck his name was, the Emperor stand-in, and the middle of the new Star Wars movies, you know, that kind of thing. But that's largely where the similarity ended. Overall, I found that Howard was far more creative than Carter. You know, in Buccaneer, magic does some pretty straightforward stuff. Scrying, mind control, portal-based teleportation. One thing that was kind of fun was making a curtain spring to life to ensnare a foe, uh, a green light that knocks people out, a mind-controlling crown, a living frog statue, and uh, oh yeah, making fog appear, which happens more than once. It's pretty much just like a standard thing that the lesser of the two main wizards in the story can do. And that kind of speaks to one of my issues with the way magic is treated in The Buccaneer by Alan Carter and Elspragg de Camp. It's just like something wizards do. It doesn't feel particularly out there, no matter how many adjectives they chuck in there telling me that it's terrifying and weird and strange. And especially because some of it they come back to and use it over and over, just like, you know, a plumber uses a plunger. The lesser wizard uses a fog bank to try and escape from the heroes when they get too close to him. I feel strongly that if you want something like magic to be weird and horrifying and special, then it needs to be special and treated as such. So let's look over what I felt really achieved that, which was the way magic was used in People of the Black Circle, where, you know, it's used for killing from afar with willpower, and hey, bonus, it swallows your soul. Plus, it's a ritual that requires a hair clipping of the person, as well as the, you know, the configuration of the stars must be right. You know, you have somebody rending a door open as if it was hit by a train just by gesturing at it. You know, verbal hypnotism, rending a broken neck with a gentle caress. What a cool contrast. It strokes someone's neck and they're woof, broken. You have a poisonous, glowy green smoke. Okay, similar maybe to the stuff from the other one. The globe of your zud, a black sphere that turns into a deadly spider. You have a mode of travel called Yimsha's carpet, which is not a flying carpet. It is a frosty crimson cloud veined with sparkling gold and used as flying transport by the titular Black Circle. There's a mention of how sorcery thrives on success, not failure. And that's it. It's more like a saying than like, you know, one of many rules that we then return to and follow over and over. The battle of wills in this story isn't just one guy staring at another guy until the writer tells us, yeah, what and then one of them fell over. You know, it's 
tied very much into character, which I'll get into in a moment, but essentially it really is grounded in what we've seen so far in the story, and it's not just the author arbitrarily saying, you know, X beats Y because I said so. Although, of course, all storytelling is because the writer says so. <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Yeah, a man is swallowed by a rift opened in the earth. There is an incredible scene, and if I read anything from this story, I think maybe uh, for my own pleasure and for yours as well, at the end of the episode, I will read you my favorite passage from this story, which is when someone is sent to travel through all their past incarnations throughout the ages to break down their willpower. There are bouncing miniature clouds that explode on contact with metal, a protective Stygian girdle that Conan wears, a killer mist you need to take a precise root through. Otherwise, you'll asphyxiate. There is all kinds of stuff. I, I haven't even gotten to it. You know, an arrow in a man's hand that turns into a poisonous stake, a crystal sphere filled with four golden pomegranates, each representing the soul of a wizard, telekinetically ripping a man's heart from his chest, uh, a wizard turning into a giant serpent, why not? And this thing I love, the thought came vaguely to Conan that the spells of magicians were more closely bound to their personal beings than were the actions of common men to the actors. And finally, a magician turns into a vulture of tremendous size at the end. The lesson I took from this was basically that Carter and DeCamp have simple tools that tire out a lesser wizard but all amount to simple superpowers except maybe the, the fog bank thing. Howard throws way more magic at you and in far greater variety, making it weird and unclear at first so you are right alongside Conan as he discovers just what the hell it is. Yeah, his descriptions are always, he tries to put you in Conan's shoes, where he's just like, what is, what is this thing? You know, he's, instead of, you know, in Buccaneer, it tends to be presented in kind of a more omniscient way, where it's just like, yeah, here's what it is, the magic that does the thing, whatever. Howard's battle of wills is remarkable for being invested with character by the love of the evil lady for the lesser wizard, Kemsa, and a lesser wizard who uses his dying breath to help Conan survive a confrontation with his former masters later. So yeah, weird variety and mystery and character equals good magic. That's what I say, yum yum, <laughs> rub your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, yeah, Yasmin's journey, traveling back through the ages, through all her previous incarnations, as it were, is also rooted in character, damn it, her royal pride. Which brings me to the second last of the things I'm going to talk about in my compare and contrast here, something a bit more universal than the weird magic routine, character. Virtually the same cast can be found in each story, yet Howard's are undeniably deeper and more compelling, while Carter slash DeCamps come off like Saturday morning cartoon heroes and villains. Both have Conan, obviously, but then both have a proud princess, a lesser sorcerer, a partner to the lesser sorcerer, so they charge around and get up to most of the hijinks, but then a greater sorcerer or sorcerers behind the lesser. And then you have Conan's fighting men. He's a leader of men in both stories. He's got his vaguely Afghanistan Afghuli, quote-unquote, tribesmen, seven of which he's trying to save right from the start, and that drives the whole story underneath everything else. And then, of course, over in Buccaneer, he's got his Buccaneers. Then you, finally you have a scheming noble, who tends to be pushing things around from uh, behind the scenes, of course, and a old fighting buddy who shows up just when he needs one. Except in Buccaneer, he becomes a sidekick that follows along for quite a while, whereas in People of the Black Circle, he seems like he's the answer to all of Conan's problems, but then stuff goes pear-shaped, <laughs> and it's not so easy, which I personally enjoy a lot more. Howard's princess, lesser sorcerer, and lesser sorcerer's partner are all more interesting by merit of their arcs and relationships, and that they really get to have them. You know, princess, uh, quote-unquote, uh, Devi Yasmina's, sorry, Yasmina's, noble responsibilities and bearing are obstacles between her and Conan getting together, obstacles Conan slowly warms up to wanting to overcome. They also inform her outside of Conan, 
content, such as how they raise her up to be humbled by the master magician, making her live all those past lives. Meanwhile, Chabella over in Buccaneer is a cartoon princess, mostly described in terms of her body. Carter says she's a good sailor, but doesn't really show it. He, you know, she frees herself from captivity once, but is captured at least one more time. I guess she does some stuff and has a mission to save her father, but she doesn't meet Conan until page 80 of a 190-page book doesn't have any great inner quality that defines her. Conan himself says, she, you know, he's too old for her. <laughs> and at the very end, we learn she wants to change everything about Conan, so he flees to adventure. Oh, women. Ugh, give me a break. Not much of a parting compared to how Devi Yashmina and Conan have an anguished and then admiring split on the battlefield, which I'll get to in a moment. Then back over in Buccaneer, you have, you know, Menkara and Zorano, the lesser magician and the lesser magician's kind of sidekick, another, you know, rogue in this case. Are there parallel goons who bicker a bit before running away with Thothamon, the great wizard, so they'll be around for some future story. Again, Saturday morning cartoon hijinks, right? La-di-da. They have no interior lives, merely riding the rails of the plot. Back in People, Kemsha, the magician, and Gitara, the somewhat evil servant to the princess that uh, has a whole thing going on with Conan, they're in love, and she convinces the wizard to ally with her in their own mutual interests, putting him at odds with his masters, the Black Seers, love and conflict, internal and external, instead of two schmucks just trying to please their masters over in Buccaneer. That love literally gives Kemsha the Lesser Magician strength in a magical duel with his former masters and makes his loss feel tragic. Then Kemsha helps his opponent, Conan, in service of revenge by proxy on said masters for killing his girl and ultimately him. The Black Seers, right, the, the ultimate wizards, are weird and proactive. They get in there and they do stuff. They drive the story. Thoth Amon, the Saturday morning cartoon villain of Buccaneer, is very straightforward. No mystery, only secrets. You know, things you don't know, but eh, ultimately you understand everything about this guy. And he sits on a throne just waiting for his goons to find him. Then I guess he schemes for power on behalf of his snake god, but so what? His counterpart in People of the Black Circle, literally called The Master, is quickly bored by the kind of political dominion Thothamon craves. And he, quote, who have known the kisses of the queens of hell, is unimpressed by Princess Devi Yashmina, though it is his whim to keep her for my slave. Finally, Conan's fighting men. In Buccaneer, they make the boat go, and they provide a plucky sidekick with one of the guys who actually gets a name, Zoltran. There is some conflict when they take on, you know, some other pirates, but it's just background noise that doesn't seem to actually cause any trouble. In the people of the Black Circle, arguably his men are the most important characters in the book, even though they are basically a bunch of goons. You know, he is trying to save seven of his Afghuli tribesmen, the headmen, the leaders amongst the, the gang, I guess. That provides Conan's initial motivation and the intersection of interests at which he and Devi Yashmina meet. Quote, the tribe is baying like wolves at my heels to resolve this. You know, they nearly lynch him on page 64. And the early promised escalation to war is a promise kept by the end of the story with added tension since, as established, his men are fierce enough to be serious trouble, but too few to ultimately win. So Conan is trying to protect these guys all through the story, through all of his actions, even when at one point they decide he's betrayed them and they are hunting him. Yet still, on page 98, he says, a chief should never desert his followers, even if they desert him first. Like, how endearing is that? <laughs> 
Plus, this creates a conflict between his love of Yashmina, which is his you know personal desire, and his obligation to you know, his men through the loyalty he feels for them. Oh, and finally, coming back to the princess for a moment, by the end of the story, she is leading an army, and he is leading his army again. And she offers him, you know, why don't you come to my kingdom and be my guy? And he's like, yeah, honestly, that's tempting for about a minute, but you and I both know that's not the life I want to lead, and ultimately you're going to wind up with some noble because that's how your country works and probably what you really want. Ultimately, we've just shared an adventure together. So instead, well, let's part as equals, destined to meet again one day as leaders in battle, essentially taking like a timeout. <laughs> So yeah, lessons I took from this, I've already given a few. You know, it was clear to me that Carter was just tick and DeCamp were just ticking boxes, plugging in parts to a simple machine. Meanwhile, Howard gives his princess a journey, his lesser villains a love story, his greater villain an alien nature and motivation, and his horde of henchmen passionate beliefs that take them on a simple journey while motivating and complicating our hero's story. None of it is complicated. But it's got way more going on than Carter and DeCamp, who just play keep away with his characters after laying out everything from the start. They just keep chasing stuff. The two big takeaways I would mention that I haven't already is that even goons deserve depth. More conflict between characters, the better, I would say. Oh, and also, um, yeah, it's fine to play with archetypes, the princess, the bigger wizard, the smaller wizard, and the seeming noble, and so forth. It, but just because they're archetypes doesn't mean that they're finished. It's still up to you to add depth and to give them something to do. Finally, I felt it was worth comparing and contrasting the matter of theme between these two texts. Specifically because of Lynn Carter's whole thing <laughs> that I read to you earlier, where he's like, this is not about anything, it's just stuff that happens. Only story, no meaning. And honestly, by the time I got to the end of the book, I was like, yeah, I think he uh, he and the camp kept that promise. I'm sure, you know, if I really wanted to, I could kind of run my fingers deeply through the book and find, you know, hidden meanings that were expressed. Because I think everything's about something, no matter how much you try to make it about pure entertainment, only plot, no meaning, because you're a person and you have your priorities and your thoughts and your little hangups and whatnot, and those will come through in your writing almost no matter what you do. But I just didn't feel inspired to do that with the Buccaneer because of how limp the story felt by the time I got to the end. And honestly, a lot of the time that you might love one story and dislike another story, even though they're both very similar, I suspect it's because one of them actually had a conscious theme that was strengthening everything along the way. Even if you didn't think about that at all while you read it, you still pick up on it. I, of course, loved the people of the Black Circle and would have happily dug through it to find the theme, but I didn't have to dig because it made it very clear. You know, the people is all about obligations to the many versus personal desire, classic theme we've seen explored in many stories. You know, Kemsha, the lesser magician, and Gitara, the slave girl, chooses the latter and is destroyed by the masters he betrays. Conan and Devi Yashmina definitely definitely lust for each other. I don't know how much love is involved, but ultimately choose to go with their respective peoples to whom they are responsible, and they live to go off and have more cool adventures. Though we only ever hear about Conan, which is a shame, I think. The takeaway here is pretty straightforward, you know? Have a theme, have an intentional friggin' theme, and have it expressed in your villains as well as your heroes so that all of your characters have something going on. It was here that I decided to stop doing my compare and contrast thing because, well, that was the end of the stuff that really stood out to me. Maybe there was stuff I missed. You know, you can 
teach an entire university course about one book and break it down like mad, let alone doing a compare and contrast between two books. But that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to write a novel. At some point, you got to move on, and which is what I'm going to do now. Though I did fill up five pages of the Denim Notebook with just me writing down, as I reread through People of the Black Circle, everything I really liked, every observation, thought, whatever, that felt like you know it was worth writing down that I had while going through it once again. And I'm sure I will re-review those notes when I get to me writing the story that I'm going to put in my novel, which is currently literally just called My People of the Black Circle Story. <laughs> Okay, time for a listener question. This one comes from Sophie down in Australia. Or up. I don't know where you are while you're listening to this. <laughs> Hi, Oliver. So you mentioned overcoming the fear of being cliche as part of your creative process. And I was just wondering about what other fears you've really come across during the writing process and how you've navigated your way through them in order to be able to publish your first novel and also keep writing. I can think of two big fears right off the top of my head, both of which are to do with a lack of awareness. One of them is, of course, the fear that I'm writing stuff that nobody's going to read. Nobody doesn't have to mean literally zero people, but, you know, people tell you just to write for yourself or just to write for yourself and like that friend that you really trust their taste. And that's like a good way of guiding yourself, I think, in terms of what you put down on the page. But of course, you want people beyond yourself and your best bud to read it. And that's fine. That's perfectly fine. You know, you don't have to be wanting to be the next Stephen King or in terms of success, if not politics, uh, J.K. Rowling. I myself would be very happy if I could get to the point where enough people are reading. And of course, because I live in a capitalist society, buying my work so that I could live a reasonably comfortable life where I'm not freaking out about keeping a roof over my head or what's going to happen to me in my old age. Maybe I can take one or two trips I'd like to take. You know, that would be pretty good. But my fear isn't that I won't achieve that. My, As much as I want it, my fear is that you know, maybe just a few people who know me will like humor me and they'll say they read the book or read a little bit of it just enough so they can sound like they read the whole thing. And uh, that's it. Nobody is interested because if nobody's interested, then I can't have made anything very compelling. And why am I spending my life making stuff that isn't terribly compelling? Maybe not even to myself. Oh, no. Or that I'm just pleasuring myself. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, I, yeah, that's, that, that, that is something definitely that I'm uh, afraid of. How do I deal with it? Well, I try to do what I can within the limits of time and energy and space to be proactive about it. This very podcast, in fact, was born out of me thinking, how can I help myself build an audience in advance of even finishing the first draft of my next book? I've also dealt with it in the past by simply saying to myself, well, that's not the problem right now. I have to have something made in order for people to ignore it. <laughs> And depending on how early you are in your writing, you can also say to yourself, well, whether they like it or don't like it, whether people read it or don't read it, you know, I'm still writing my first, second, third, fifth, you know, whatever, a short story, novel, screenplay, whatever it is, I'm still figuring things out. If nothing else, I will come away from this improved in my ability, which will up the odds down the line, I think, of people liking my stuff, right? The other fear related to awareness that has made writing difficult for me at times has been the fear that I am just incapable of seeing my 
errors of seeing my blind spots, right? By definition, you can't see your blind spots, really, can you? I don't know. I don't drive enough to make this metaphor work better. But <laughs> basically, this is me just second guessing myself, wondering if I'm too much of a big dummy to realize what a stupid dummy dumb dumb I am. <laughs> The two things I've done that have really helped me with this are A, soliciting outside perspectives, of course, getting other people to read my work, sometimes telling them specifically what I'm looking for in terms of like, you know, where have I screwed up? I think I'm screwing up X, Y, Z, you know, and a lot of the time not telling them, just seeing what they pick up on. And if they don't say anything about a certain part, sometimes I'll leave it alone and think, okay, I guess I didn't screw up the thing in the bit. Or I'll say, hey, you know that part that you didn't mention? What did you think of blah? Like, was this fight scene too long? Uh, you know, was it too detailed? Was it making this kind of error or whatever? And they'll be like, yes or no or whatever. And of course that helps. The other thing that helps is me just writing things down. And in terms of self-awareness, this usually manifests in the project diary entries I've mentioned before, where I write about what I'm working on, like in the way that I might write about myself in my personal diary. You know, where is it at? Where do I think it's going? What are my concerns? And that allows me to be a bit more thoughtful about what I'm doing, which makes me less likely to be unable to see the things I should be avoiding or could be working on. And of course, something that helps with both the issue of worrying nobody will read my stuff or only like a couple of friends will and worrying that I am blind to my own issues, though, so that I can never work on those issues is just not giving a crap, which is not always an option. You're, you're not always in that headspace or able to access that headspace. But when you can, honestly, just go, eh, who cares? And keep writing. It's an amazing, simple strength that can really carry you through. Okay, next time I'm going to probably talk about organizing principles, you know, how I created kind of a guide for myself that I could always return to whenever I feel lost while writing this novel. So I'm Writing a Novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an MP3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter, look for at So I'm Writing a Novel. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first book, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon. And I'll see you real soon, actually, if you want to hang around after the music for my reading of my favorite section from People of the Black Circle. Okay, in my edition of the story in uh, Conan the Adventurer, the fifth volume of the L. Sprague, DeCamp, and Lynn Carter collections, this begins at the bottom of page 71. We're about halfway through the story where the Devi Yashmina has been, uh, the princess, has been kidnapped by the master, the ultimate wizard. Great names here, of course. 
And he spends most of page 71 making it clear that he is very weird and strange and not something that she can fully understand. And she's like, screw you, man, I'm going to get out of here. And he's like, you're a fool. You know, classic villain taunting the person he's captured stuff. And then it gets to the bottom where he says, you know, it is my whim to keep you for my slave. And it kicks off. The daughter of a thousand proud emperors gasped with shame and fury at the word. You dare not. His mocking laughter cut her like a whip across her naked shoulders. The king dares not trample a worm in the road. Little fool, do you not realize that your royal pride is no more to me than a straw blown on the wind? I, who have known the kisses of the queens of hell, you have seen how I deal with a rebel. Cowed and awed, the girl crouched on the velvet-covered dais. The light grew dimmer and more phantom-like. The features of the master became shadowy. His voice took on a newer tone of command. I will never yield to you, her voice trembled with fear, but it carried a ring of resolution. You will yield, he answered with horrible conviction. Fear and pain shall teach you. I will lash you with horror and agony to the last quivering ounce of your endurance until you become as melted wax to be bent and molded in my hands as I desire. You shall know such discipline as no mortal woman ever knew until my slightest command is to you as the unalterable will of the gods. And first, to humble your pride, you shall travel back through the lost ages and view all the shapes that have been you. I yil la kosha. At these words, the shadowy room swam before Yashmina's affrighted gaze. The roots of her hair prickled her scalp, and her tongue clove to her palate. Somewhere a gong sounded a deep, ominous note. The dragons on the tapestries glowed like blue fire, then faded out. The master on his dais was but a shapeless shadow. The dim light gave way to soft, thick darkness, almost tangible, that pulsed with strange radiations. She could no longer see the master. She could see nothing. She had a strange sensation that the walls and ceiling had withdrawn immensely from her. Then, somewhere in the darkness, a glow began. Like a firefly that rhythmically dimmed and quickened, it grew to a golden ball, and as it expanded, its light grew more intense, flaming whitely. It burst suddenly, showering the darkness with white sparks that did not illuminate the shadows, but like an impression left in the gloom, a faint luminance remained, and revealed a slender, dusky shaft shooting up from the shadowy floor. Under the girl's dilated gaze, it spread, took shape, stems and broad leaves appeared, and great black poisonous blossoms that towered above her as she cringed against the velvet. A subtle perfume pervaded the atmosphere. It was the dread figure of the black lotus that had grown up as she watched, as it grows in the haunted, forbidden jungles of Katai. The broad leaves were murmurous with evil life. The blossoms bent toward her like sentient things, nodding serpent-like on plant stems. Etched against soft, impenetrable darkness, it loomed over her, gigantic, blackly visible in some mad way. Her brain reeled with the drugging scent, and she sought to crawl from the dais. Then she clung to it as it seemed to be pitching at an impossible slant. She cried out with terror and clung to the velvet, but she felt her fingers ruthlessly torn away. There was a sensation as of all sanity and stability crumbling and vanishing. She was a quivering atom of sentiency driven through a black, roaring, icy void by a thundering wind that threatened to extinguish her feeble flicker of animate life like a candle blown out in a storm. Then there came a period of blind impulse and movement when the atom that was she mingled and merged with myriad other atoms of spawning life in the yeasty morass of existence, 
molded by formative forces until she emerged again, a conscious individual, whirling down an endless spiral of lives. In a mist of terror, she relived all her former existences, recognized and was again all the bodies that had carried her ego throughout the changing ages. She bruised her feet again over the long, weary road of life that stretched out behind her into the immemorial past. Back, beyond the dimmest dawns of time, she crouched shuddering in primordial jungles, hunted by slavering beasts of prey. Skin-clad, she waded thigh-deep in rice swamps, battling with squawking waterfowl for the precious grains. She labored with the oxen to drag the pointed stick through the stubborn soil, and she crouched endlessly over looms in peasant huts. The hooded head bent down toward her averted face, and she screamed and screamed again in poignant fear and loathing. Bony arms gripped her lithe body, and from that hood looked forth a countenance of death and decay, features like rotting parchment on a moldering skull. She screamed again, and then, as those champing, grinning jaws bent toward her lips, she lost consciousness. <laughs>